I'm Michelle Olivier, and you're listening to Hey, I Want Your Job, the podcast that looks at amazing jobs and what it takes to get them. Welcome to Hey, I Want Your Job, and today I have Jennifer Holman. Jennifer, your job is very sexy and, you know, immediately enticing to people. Jennifer, what is your job title? I'm just, first of all, I'm shocked that it sounds sexy, but I am a chief information officer and vice president of a large offshore drilling company called Seadrill. Uh, but sometimes I like to, to make it sound even sexier. Sometimes I like to call it the chief inspiration officer. I feel like anytime it has that little C letter, we're straight into the sexy category because <laughs> people's impression of what anybody in the C-suite does versus what reality of the C-suite is could not be more different, right? So I think. let's start there because I know, okay. so I, because I like, I do career coaching with certain people at all levels, right? And right. junior level folks really, they think that all you do all day is you look at some Excel spreadsheets. If you're fancy, you might use a little Tableau. And uh, then you take a bunch of Zoom calls, really long lunch, weekends in, you know, wine country. Like <laughs> mostly your life is jet set and nap taking and um, telling people to, to do other, to do the actual work. What would your response to that assumption about your working <laughs> life be? <laughs> So I would say that, I don't know, I think, I think it depends on who you are and your personality, right? Uh, a lot of my time is spent in, in email. Um, a lot of my time is spent texting because I love texting um, rather than being an email. A lot of my sp time is spent on Teams, just communicating and chatting. And, and really, I've, I've tried really hard as, the, as, you know, as, a, as a technologist to use the technology I put out for the rest of my company and using it effectively and efficiently myself. It looks like that. Good it modeling. looks like a good modeling trying to, right, for the rest of the organization uh, to use the technology I expect them to use. It, it looks like a lot of conversation, right, and collaborating not only, I believe collaborating most importantly with my peers. Um, some people believe in the C-suite, you know, collaborating with either the people directly above them or their own people. Uh, but I believe a lot in um, uh, Patrick Lencioni's The Five Dysfunctions of a Team and those concepts, and that my number one team is my peers. And so I really try hard to collaborate more with them um, and, then, and then delegate, yes, and encourage uh, my team to do what we need to get done or what my peers need for them to get done. And so, and, and you know, every once in a while, conversations to the, the um, executive committee in our organization. So that's what it looks like. A lot of talking is what it looks like. I bet. I bet. So I, I think mm. it's always really hard when you're in like a knowledge-based role to kind of quantify what you do. Does, if that makes mm. sense, like, you know, what did you achieve today? Well, I thought a lot of things and <laughs> I shared right. a lot of information Yeah. and uh, you're welcome. I'm exhausted. That's right. <laughs> That's right. I know. I think you're right. I think it's, you know, I think for me, it's, it's um, a lot of uh, inspiring, encouraging, motivating especially when you have, for me, the most important thing is as, as a business leader, um, I may be an IT person or a technologist, but my number one job, um, and hopefully this doesn't sound passe, but is shareholder value. 
And that means decreasing costs consistently, uh, doing everything I can to support my, my peers in increasing revenue, uh, generating better, better margins, um, all the while improving our customer service and our, our improving our solutions. Yeah. So it's like save money, make money, um, but make everything better, right? Which normally some people attribute to spending money. And so I just, I, I think for me, it's finding creative ways to encourage all of those things. Um, because sometimes I feel like people feel um, like stagnant or they feel like um, stalled. Uh, they can't get their head around decreasing spend, but improving and spending money on quality and uh, things that we need to prove in quality. So it's really kind of helping people shift their minds to a faster way of thinking, a more efficient and effective way and uh, not get paralyzed by decisions. So as a technologist, which by the mm. way, I love that that's how you self-describe. Um, so as a technologist, one of the challenges is that tech is always moving, always changing. Yeah. And, you know, if you stay in one place, you fall behind. Yeah. One of the challenges when you're in an organization is, and especially I think when you're at the C-suite level is how do you stay abreast? So how do you, how do you keep your finger on the pulse and know what's coming next? And like, what, what are your resources so that you're getting the best information possible about how to guide people? From internal or external, Michelle, what, yeah. what, what do you, external? Okay, so let's talk about internal. So internal is just about setting the mojo with your own team and your peers, right? Um, one is with internally with my, let's talk about my number one team, which is my peers. Just keeping, I have people that I call business partners or liaisons who keep a pulse on my peers' organizations um, and what they're needing out of technology. And then weekly and trying consistently to uh, stay updated through them. And so that's kind of have, that's kind of making sure I, I know what's going on in their organization. So I know what I need to be doing for them. Um, that's with my peers. My second team, which is the people that work for me, it's constantly trying to stay in communication with them in multiple ways, right? Whether individual meetings or having team meetings, keeping a pulse on what, letting them know what's important to me and, and having them let me know what's going on out there and, and always setting the mojo that I never want to be surprised. Like, let me know what's going Like, I don't even know everything. And I'm, you know, not the only one with the solutions or the ideas in the room, but enough to keep us out of trouble, keep us ahead of the game. Um, but that's, a, that's kind of a culture you have to set, right? So you don't get caught off guard. Yeah. On the external piece, which is what's going on with the industry or technology, with, with the energy industry, it's really just having your pulse on the media and the news and things that are going on and the research that's going on out there. I love Google alerts to keep me you know, informed of deals and decisions that are being made. I looked at, at a lot at LinkedIn on, you know, and, and following our customers, our competitors and our suppliers. Um, but the only thing, the other thing too, is I have a um, weekly meeting with my team where we do innovation and technology research for the technology piece of that. So not, you know, my energy industry specific, but technology industry specific. Things are moving so fast. So we meet on a weekly basis and basically do what I call, I call Google time, where we basically Google together uh, for an hour, um, looking at all the different emerging digital technologies that are out there, the industrial technologies in our space that are out there. Again, what our competitors, our suppliers and our customers are doing um, to stay ahead of the game. So we, we Google together. That. I feel like they must love that, right? Like just like having full on, like let's just go down all the rabbit holes together, kind of like nerd nerd out time. I feel like that's really exciting. 
in the current climate, like historically, there would be big conferences with like industry tech and you would have a chance to walk around and get free pens and like see all of the stuff that people are doing. Obviously, right now, those aren't really happening. Has that shifted your your thoughts and what you do on any of that? Or did you always <laughs> kind of consider that to be like bonus feature and that really the, the, the other research was more of how you kept Generally not um, a conference attender. You don't like free pens? Who doesn't no, like free pens, Jennifer? Oh my. No, no, no. I'm sorry. I like specific pens that I like to individually, you know, use. So uh, like I have my favorite, you know, Zgrip pen that that's my favorite or my favorite highlighter or my favorite Sharpie or <laughs> my favorite pencil. What I've learned is, is um, I've kind of, Michelle, kind of gone with an approach about individualization. And so for me, I am not a big conference attender. I'm not a big, um, have a lot of consultants or third parties um, tell me what I should be doing. I think there's, a, I think outtasking and outsourcing appropriately or efficiently, right sourcing is important to get information from them or sometimes doing our own research, but validating and legitimizing our opinions or what we, what ideas we have with them is good. But that being the source of just letting everybody bring a whole bunch of stuff to us, whether the conference or online, um, like virtual rooms or whatever, it's just not my style. It never has been. I've never been like a big conference attender. Um, I think there's a whole lot of suppliers there and you need to go do that every once in a while, but it shouldn't be uh, the source of a lot of your research. I definitely believe organic research is because you have to get passionate about it and you have to really understand how it applies to your business. Um, so it really hasn't hurt um, the way we do that inside of uh, IT or technology at, at our company. Um, in fact, we just launched an innovation pipeline where we're actually going out and my, my IT and technology teams are going out and doing the research, doing the Googling um, with what our competitors, our customers, our suppliers, as well as other industries are doing. And then educating our other employees that are maybe drillers or engineers or HR people or supply chain people telling them, hey, this is what's out there. Could you possibly use this? So we're having like lessons, um, like um, lunch and learn sessions to teach them about emerging digital tech and helping them understand, can you use what they're using in the car industry for our, you know, a use case here or, and exposing them to different technologies. So I really find that organic and then bringing it into different roles within our organization is what working. So we just launched our innovation pipeline. We've got a good, some good few ideas that are solid. Um, putting some money towards that and, and keep on moving forward. That's awesome. I love that idea. So you as a CIO are very much the target audience for any number of organizations out there. Like so many people would love five minutes of your time to tell you about the fantastic product that they have <laughs> on offer. Yeah. How do you handle that? Because I know as a recruiter, I have often been part of the problem, um, right? And that as an HR person, I know how irritating it is when people like my recruiter self would be like, you know, I think there was a study done a while back that on average, HR people get 250 plus pieces of unsolicited yeah. uh, sales stuff each week. I yeah. can only imagine it must be similar at the CIO level. 
what is your strategy? Like, how do you fend off bad would-be suppliers and and figure out who you do actually want to talk to? You know, I, I look at, I actually look at all of it. Um, okay. Uh, so when I get emails, I kind of, it goes into my, um, you know, your focus and your other, in Office 365, you have focus and other, right? Uh, folders. And then I, I, those usually are now trained to go to my other folder. And, and I look through them, I kind of like flip through them. And the stuff that looks the same all the time, I just kind of glance and I'm like, okay. But when it's really catchy, when somebody can really catch my eye, I actually take a second look at it. And like, hey, is that really, you know, they have a personality um, and they use a little bit of a humanistic approach. And so I look at it again and say, okay, is that something I need or don't need? Or is it, if I already have a solution like that or an idea like that, I usually just delegate it. Meaning I use the big forward button to my leadership team and say, hey, take a look at this. And it usually is a product they've already heard about um, or a solution that already competes with something we're already looking at. And they either add it into that portfolio to see if they want to reach out and, and then it goes to them and then they'll bring it back to me um, after they vet it. So I really try to look at everything I get I hope that doesn't mean I'm going to get 5,000 emails I'd today. Say, I feel like you just made every salesperson <laughs> out there day, Jennifer. Like, <laughs> signed yourself up for right. infinitely more crap. <laughs> I know, right? I know. Right? But sometimes there's nuggets in that crap, right? So so there's, sure. for example, we're, we're working on something right now. We're working on our, our environmental portfolio and what we're going to do from a technology standpoint with um, um, basically GHG reduction. Uh, in the in our on our rigs, right, and in our company, and so I have a company that I'm working with right now that's going to validate and legitimize whether or not we have researched and looked at all the different technologies where we could have, um, you know, a CO2 or NOx reduction with, right? And so we did that. Well, we've done all the research. We came up with our recommendations with seven technologies. We're choosing to look at uh, to proceed with four. I've got a company coming in to legitimize that and validate if that's the right thing to do and if they have any other ideas. And then, but they were kind of the only player in that space that I knew of. And then all of a sudden I got an email of another from another company that said, hey, this is kind of what we did. So I sent it to my technology team. I said, hey, look at this. And they said, hey, this is a competitor to that other provider that's gonna validate our recommendation. Um, I said, go talk to them. Let's, let's, because I didn't have another, I didn't have a like for like comparison of those two companies. So it really is going to give me a level up on making sure I have a good validation of the technology we're about to recommend to, uh, to try to get to a reduction, you know, by year X. And so, um, so, you know, I, I think it's worth our time. We, on LinkedIn, it's a little bit hard. There's a lot of email that you get in LinkedIn, your inbox. And um, I don't always look at all that. It's really what comes to my personal, my, uh, sorry, not my personal, my work email address is uh, what I try to look at. So I, I think we should try. We owe it to ourselves. There's a lot of people out there that are, to me, it's like an extension of our own selves, right? They're out there doing the research. They're out there knowing what needs to come uh, to us with the capabilities we have and what we need to be doing in the future. So it's worth my time to glance at it and see if it's something that could potentially my business can use, again, to decrease cost, increase revenue, improve my margins, and improve our service quality. I, I mean, like I said, I think that's great. I just think that, like, you have made every salesperson who tries <laughs> to sell to CIOs, which is a lot, like, all of... All the SaaS people will now be like, email Jennifer. She actually reads it. <laughs> if, hey, if it's good shit, it'll pass me. If it's not good shit, it won't pass me. <laughs> so we'll see. I love it. 
So you mentioned in that the technology that you're working on around like certifying um, your green initiatives and that sort of thing within your organization. Yeah. So I want to piggyback on that a minute because sure. again, recruitment space. So everything comes back to recruitment in my world. Yes. Um, and I know I get a lot of pushback from ca- candidates right now about like, I don't want to work in, I don't want to work for this. I don't want to work for that. All the candidates I talk to, like they want to work for somewhere that has warm and fuzzies and that the great culture and is like making the world a better place, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Are you finding it difficult to recruit in oil and gas? Do you feel or see any of that pushback um, in the candidate market at all? No, I, I mean, I don't, but I think, I think it has nothing to do with exactly what company it kind of has a bit to do with what company you're coming to work for but actually has to do with who you're coming to work for right and so I you know if you look at look I I think my 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 business card is my LinkedIn and and if you look at my LinkedIn it is very personalized I tell you who I am I tell you I've got kids I tell you I have a husband um, I tell you what's important to me as a human and that that's for people that don't know me, that should be their, their business card, their, you know, their executive summary of who Jennifer Roman is. And, and then it's now look at where I've been and you can see some of the expertise I have. And hopefully with that, what it looks like is that I'm a person you want to come work for or work with. I don't believe in working for anyone. I believe in working with everybody. And so I don't like that whole hierarchical piece that, that we attribute to somebody being a boss versus I it's just, anyways, I can, I can get, hung up on those titles, but, but people have come to work for me mostly that know me. Mm-hmm. So usually when I need to fill a role, I can pick out about three or four candidates of people I've come across in my, in, in my um, history and work history and say, you know what, go reach out to this person, that person, that person, and see if they, if they're wanting to make a move or if they're wanting to come and work in this part of the segment of our industry um, and then go find the people that already know me. Um, and that, that for me also helps me provide an inclusive set of candidates, um, and and a diverse set of candidates. Right. And then the second piece is the people that, that don't know me again, hopefully they're looking at my LinkedIn. They can see what type of person in our first conversation. Um, you'll get to know what kind of person I am. I'm so, so direct, (laughs) And, and I am who I am on Zoom, who is who I am on the phone, is who I am in person. And so I think with that, just being authentic, an authentic leader, and just being an authentic person, um, you can figure out if you want to come work for me. And so this notion that you don't want to, you want to go work for green energy rather than fossil fuels, uh, if I ever did come across that, Michelle, um, explaining the industry and the energy landscape would be very important to me for them. So for example, let's say I have somebody that come from, from a younger generation that says, you know what, I don't want to work for fossil fuels. Uh, it's dirty. It doesn't, I, I disagree. You're never, we're never, the energy landscape is always going to include fossil fuels. And let me tell you the type of people we have in this industry, which are gritty, which are fun, which love this industry, which love helping power the world and who are conscious about their actions and conscientious about the uh, the environment, and so it's there's just a misnomer. I would help people understand you're, you're listening to a perception that's not true. It's a lot of uneducated people about what the oil and gas industry actually does and what we care about. You know, we're one of the biggest contributors to the community in which we operate. 
um, in many ways, from a philanthropic standpoint, from a social standpoint, from an environmental standpoint. I always make light of this, but it's so true. We save the horny toad frog in areas we operate or the doo-doo bird, the dodo bird, not doo-doo bird, the dodo bird in West Texas. We spend a lot of money saving his or her life as a bird. And so I think it's just, it's just lack of knowledge to understand um, where we truly are uh, as an industry. And, and I love my industry. I've worked with some of the most amazing human beings on this planet um, that actually care about people and care about the environment. I always think it's so inspiring when a leader really, really loves like their industry and that, that passion. And I think you're right. Like it really, it motivates people and it moves the needle hugely for anybody. So I can only applaud that because I think that that's incredible. And I think that if everybody at that kind of position and at your kind of level felt that passionately about what they did, it would probably make all recruiters everywhere in life a lot easier. <laughs> Because mm. we'd be able to really does, you have to, to, you know, somebody who wants to be here and isn't just here for, I don't want to say just here for the money because ultimately we all work for money, right? Yeah. And, yeah. And I hate this whole, like, we're here because we're a family. No, we're bloody not. We're here for a paycheck. Um, but, um, but I do think that working for people who really, really want to show up every day is just a totally different experience from working for leaders who lament their job for want of a better mm. term. And I'm sure you have seen those as well, because I think we all have. Um, so I am fascinated because you are um, young for a boardroom, especially in your sector. And I don't know if anybody told you, but you are a female. Um, <laughs> we better tell my husband. Well, and, and your kids come to that, like <laughs> news flashes all around. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Um, but there's not as many women in boardrooms as we would like to see. So in your experience, from what you've said in a sector that you love, why do you think that there aren't as many women as we would like to see in the boardroom? You know, I, I have to tell you that I'm not always in the boardroom, right? Because although I have a C title, I report to the CEO of the organization. So I don't always get to go to the boardroom and, and you know, but I do get to present to the board. Um, you know, I think it's, it's, it's time. It, it's a timeline, right? I mean, we, we only got the right to vote how many decades ago? Hasn't even, right? So I think it just is going to consistently take time for us to get to the point where we look like the population does, which is 50-50. In fact, I think there's now more women than there are there are men, if I'm not mistaken, right? And there's actually more women going into university than there, than there are men. And so that to me takes time. It's not a like all of a sudden, you know, it happens. And, and I have to be honest with you, my, my biggest champions have always been men, always, right? And so... Uh, T totally. Well, that's the thing. Like that's as well studied, documented thing that actually women at higher levels are less supportive of pulling up women than men are. Like that has been well documented that the your biggest obstacle is often the female in charge. You know, I, I have to say out of all of my experiences with leaders who I've directly reported to, um, it's probably now, no, mostly I've probably always reported to men, probably 60% of the time and women 40% of the time. My one time uh, biggest challenge working for a woman um, was only out of the two, it was the worst experience. 
And so, um, and, and my personality probably um, has a lot to do with that too, because I'm very direct and I'm very transparent. And so there are just some non-negotiables for me when it comes to morals and ethics. And so, so that had a lot to do with it too. I do believe, although, but I've had the other female I worked for was super supportive. The other two females I worked for were super supportive of, of me and my career and, and helping and so on and so forth. Maybe not, I, I, sometimes I wonder if they had the right level of ability to help you know, continue to promote, but I'm not, um, I'm not a woman that believes I've been held back. I am only, I just now turned 50 and not afraid to share my age. Um, but I did hear hit the CIO role when I was 48. Um, and so is that, you know, I don't know what the, the numbers look like on that, but I do believe there is this, this perception that women don't help other women pull them up. Um, that's not my approach at all. I, I am always one to, um, push someone up to the top I believe if I continuously promote others and support others to continue to progress, uh, it just it just helps all of us, right? Not not just helps us, but also helps men. And and I think that we have to continue to emulate that leadership quality. Uh, but I also don't believe that just because I'm a woman, I should promote. Um, you know, I mean, I think there, I think you've got to have the capabilities and the skills and the wherewithal, no matter if you're male or female, or or you carry a different pronoun we have to all have the skills and capabilities to do that. What we need to do for me, in, inclusion and getting that balanced out has everything to do with um, truly understanding what in, uh, putting together for yourself, a diverse mosaic of people that you surround yourself in your personal life. If at the dinner table, your dinner table is very monolithic, either gender, race, culture, or sexual orientation then you're limiting yourself to understanding and, and understanding that those people's back types of backgrounds, right? So if your personal dinner table looks very monolithic, something is wrong, right? Now, I'm going to take that in the professional world because I believe your personal journey and adventure, that your professional journey will be different once you, under, once you expose yourself to multiple cultures, race, races, genders. I mean, I used to be a woman that hung out with all men. I grew up in the oil and gas industry since I was, you know, 20 years old. I'm that's been 30 years that it was a it was an industry dominated by men because that's who went into that business, not because it was intentional, but that it's a rough, dirty business, right? And so that's who was out in the field and roughnecking it, and not because they didn't want women, but it was just a, it's kind of a rough field, right? I, so I had to actually start hanging out with more women in my personal life, like have girlfriends. And so, because I was what considered, some people could consider a guy's chick, right? I just hung out naturally with them. And so I had to expose myself to my own gender more and having girlfriends. And then the other piece is then, as well as, as culture and race and color um, and the sexual orientation, it's, it's exposing your personal life to that and under, learning different people's backgrounds. And then in your professional life, it becomes so much easier to invite to the, that table too because you understand their background and their culture and where they're coming from. So to me, inclusion and, and filling up that with an equal, you know, where, where you're in a place where you operate and work, your company should look like the community, right? That you, where you operate and work. And then, but you do that for me, it's a personal journey that turns in, has now turned into a professional journey. Now I have a list of people that when I have an open role, I can call a variation of gender, 
of race, of, of culture, of sexual orientation and be like, but I don't call them for those reasons. I call them because they're good at what they do, but I now know more of them because I've surrounded myself and understanding who they are. So I think that that is a, a huge, I think that's a great point. And I think that mm. that is a really great listen that, you know, for all of us that, um, there, I was an article I read a while back that talked about, would you change where you sit, you change where you stand. And that, you know, if that they talked about, um, uh, adopting a child whose skin tone was remarkably different from theirs. Mm. Mm -hmm. And that the reality of watching that child and what the way that they were treated by society, et cetera, that that changed where they sat, right? Like mm. now all of a sudden I am the parent worried about my black teenager walking home mm. and what happens that changes where you sit, which then changed everything about where they stood on a variety of issues. And I think that that, is exactly what you're articulating, that I you know, before we worry about changing where we stand in the workplace, we begin, we need to start with changing where we sit in our personal lives and who sits with us. Mm -hmm. I think that's fantastic self-awareness. So how, I like the way you put that. I like the way you put that. Yes. So how did you do that? Like, what was, like, I need more brown people in my life. Like, what did you No, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't brown people yeah. need? <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't such a personal, well, let me just say, so first of all, we sent our children, it starts with my children, really. We sent our children to, um, uh, let me go back. You know, I grew up in the, in the eighties, right? Seventies and eighties. And so I have to tell you as a child, I really never thought about that. Mm -hmm. Um, but at school I had friends of, of ever, I, I never discriminated on friends. I had all kinds of friends, right. And every socioeconomic level, every group, you know, whether they were stoners or whether they were the athletes, I was, you know, considered an athlete for a bit or the popular people I, or the ones that, you know, took metal shop or whatever. I had kind of friends in, in every space, but when I grew up and my personal, you know, you had your like twenties, thirties, where you kind of hang around the same people that, that look like you, we are village people, humans in, you know, innately are village and clans people. So we normally hang out with the villages, types of villages in which we grew up in, right? That we feel comfortable in. So it's almost against us being inclusive because we like, we just feel more comfortable with people that have a similar background. So you kind of have to, it, so my personal journey on inclusion really started, and I don't really call it that, my personal journey really started when my children were in, I sent them to a, an international school um, and they had a diverse set of friends from all over the world. Um, so diverse culture, diverse color, race, background, all of that. And, and so my sons uh, had a, a diverse set of friends that they had surrounded themselves with, not intentional, just naturally. And one day, um, my oldest son was here. He had about 10 boys over at the house. Um, two of them have to be, happen to be people That's of color. That's a lot. Yeah, <laughs> I know, right? I know. <laughs> Michelle, don't worry, it's coming. Hey, no. look, you gotta make, you gotta make your house the place where they party because then you don't know where they are out there. But anyways, that's what we did, right? And so the boys were over, they were playing, they were about probably in about seventh grade or eighth grade. They were outside playing basketball. And in my neighborhood, um, there were two boys that were of color. Uh, in my neighborhood, the police passed by three times within about 30 to 45 minutes. And uh, one of the young the, the boys um, came to me. In fact, he actually lives with us now. 
Um, and I consider him my son. He got out of college and, and we asked him during COVID, we said, come live with us because his parents lived uh, in, in countries in Africa. And so, um, but the police had passed by like three times. And so he came inside and he said, Ms. Jen, I'm, I'm kind of scared. Like the police keep passing by your by the house. Um, and so I just went outside, took my lawn chair and sat at the end of the lawn, at the end of the drive. And I was like, what are you doing? Like, why are you passing by my house four times? It's the fourth time you pass by. So like, I don't understand. Do you think something nefarious is like going on with these boys who's playing basketball? They're not like, it's not past curfew. They're not like walking up and down the street, but even if they were, would that be a problem? You know, it's not like, you know, they look, they don't look like they're doing anything wrong. And he had no answer. And so I said, look, I think you need to understand what your presence does to some of these children. And, and I just explained it just out and right. And then he went on, he apologized and, and, moved, and went on down the street. Another time, uh, my youngest son had a little boy that was over who was a person of color. And um, a kid from down the street came over and said, hey, I, they were playing Nerf guns in the backyard. And so he said, well, let's go to my house. I've got more Nerf guns. And so my, my youngest, who was probably six at the time, said, okay, let's go. And he grabbed his, his other friend, you know, he's like, let's go to his house. And um, the little boy from down the street said, but I don't know if he can come. And that was like, I was within earshot. And my six-year-old looked at him and looks at him and says, well, if he can't come, I am not coming. And so those were two instances that were very personal for me. The first time I'd ever seen discrimination or um, unintentional one was a bit intentional the other one was unintentional from a small child where I was like okay whether that was intentional or not I'm not sure but that didn't feel good and so I think that's where my personal journey went down to understanding people that don't look like me and and people that come from different background and and my father happened to be Iranian and so during the Iranian hostage crisis we experienced all kinds of racism and so so I just connected with that and went down this path and journey my 40th birthday, I spent with a group of women uh, that, that, are, that are Black, who I basically said, teach me about racism. Teach me what your child, your children experience. That's how I wanted to spend my first 40th birthday, because I put them around a dinner table. I broke bread, and I said, help me understand. I don't feel like I'm racist, but I don't understand my bias, my unconscious bias. And so help me get that. So I just went down this personal journey, which then led into my professional journey of getting to know other people that didn't look like me so I could understand their background, understand their capabilities and their skills so that when I have an open role, I don't just think of the people I normally hang out with in my own village, but my village now consists of a diverse group of people. And so I think of those other people because if you don't hang around those people, you don't know what they're capable of. So you have to hang around with them. So one of the things that I love best about executive recruitment is because when I do execs, Nobody really cares what y'all do or don't do at an individual contributor level because like you sit around, you play with spreadsheets, you write emails. So the questions that I get are very much, what are they like? Who are they? And one Mm -hmm. of the things that I love already about our conversation is that you've in so many ways talked about that, that like that's your LinkedIn presence, that's your um, philosophy about work, et cetera. And one of the things that I try to coach my clients on with varying degrees of success is that <laughs> at all times, the first question should be, who are they? Yeah. And then worry about the skill set because you can train, right? Like 
okay, you need a shit hot Java developer and they're a lukewarm Java developer. Well, there's Java courses you could put them on. Um, if they're the right human for mm. the role. And so I guess my question as a hiring manager, is that something that you try to embrace mm. when you are bringing people in and what does it look like in the way that, in the way that you embrace that? You know, personality and mojo is everything to me. Um, it, it, it can, it, it creates your culture. Um, and so those things are much more important to me than, I mean, obviously I want the skills. I want to know what you've done in your background. If you're an architect, kind of how good you're at it and what you've, you know, what your portfolio looks like of the things that you're, that you've done, but those are so easy to articulate and you can easily tell where, you know, the BS from the non BS. Right. But really the personality means literally 80% of the, of the opportunity to me. Um, if, if it's a, if it's an apple that's going to come into my cart and just rotten everything because they've got a bad um, outlook on life or they're negative, like, or, you know, they complain a lot, like that's going to be, that's going to be what hurts my team and doesn't make them feel like they can collaborate and work together and accomplish things together than anything. And so yeah. it really, so I, and I think I have to be as transparent with myself on the type of leader I am, if you don't know me, I mean, remember, rarely have I ever hired somebody I don't know, um, just because my my hires come a lot through all the network and the relationship that I have, and and so I'm never having to do that cold. But I think gone is the day where this is. I think back in the 70s and 80s, 60s, 50s, but like work stays at work and home stays at home. Like that, that's just not mental. That's yeah. not good mental health. I right? think anybody that was still holding on to that ridiculous notion, 2020 just shat all over it. It was like, oh. I had to. Look, you you just now came into my home. You know, I like butterflies. You know, I'm a patriot. My husband likes cigars. You probably see my dogs. I see your dog's tail over there too. Yeah. Right? Yeah. My dogs have been in and out of shot. And the, the Pokemon collection, I am pleased to say, has moved because they have earned back their Pokemon. Normally, <laughs> Windowsill has all the Pokemon. Mommy That's has right. confiscated them. So, oh, I love you know. it. I love it. Yeah. And, you know, you would see Yoda because I love, I love Star Wars. So, you, you know, and, yeah. and you're right. Nature God, the universe, whatever you want to call, whatever it is you acknowledge or admire, just shook that up in 2020. Yeah. And, and it needed it, right? It, it needed it because it's, I think if you consider if you want people to not talk about what's going on at home, I mean, I don't certainly don't need to make it the business problems of the day, but if you don't, then we're not, the mental health part of this is just not, we're not mentally well, well if we're not sharing who we are. I agree. And I, you know, I have to say, I remember um, when 9-11 happened that mm. I was working for a title company and I remember very clearly being told that no we were not stopping work no you couldn't go home no you didn't need a television I'm like crazy what? and at the time it was awful because my dad was supposed to have been on one of the flights and so we were freaking oh out um, and so I was like, really, I'm going to sit here and pretend to be a receptionist when literally the world is on fire. Great. Sure. Makes perfect fucking sense. And, no. And then and I look back at that and I was like, oh, but I was young enough in my career that what that taught me was work is work and, and not is not. And so I have been guilty of saying to employees, I don't need your personal shit in my office. Yeah. And I'm not going to lie. Like, yeah, good for you for being honest. Yeah. 
But at the same time, I haven't always been great as a mental health ally and understanding that, like, you can say that all day long, but ultimately, you know, if your mom has cancer, it's going to affect you at the office. Yeah. And so giving employees space to process and finding a healthy way to acknowledge without letting that overtake is important. And I think, um, like I said, I know that like 2020 and 2021 has been really informative. And I see so many employers that just got it so wrong, Jennifer. And I'm sure yeah. you, you have as well. Man, I tell you what. So, so Michelle, I was introduced to um, an, an epidemic in our in our society. Of, it's called sex trafficking, right? About five years ago, you know, I, I really learned a lot. It was came up close and personal with people that I knew whose daughters were groomed and lured into uh, being trafficked for sex. Oh God! And oh, so I, that to, that helped me understand socially what was going on, the level of trauma people have. I lived I lived a pretty charmed life, right? I had my parents were great parents. They were successful, um, good human beings. And so I'd never experienced childhood trauma um, like others have. That taught me a lot about trauma that people have. You know, if you consider everybody has this backpack of experiences and a lot of people's backpacks, there's a lot of trauma there mm -hmm. and, and, or a little bit of trauma or a lot or trigger, you know, things that would trigger them. Or a little trauma so I, that feels like a lot of trauma. Like it feels like a lot, know, right? Because yeah. you don't have the coping skills to learn how to deal with that trauma. So that taught me one thing. The other thing too is, it, and, and so I had a lot of, I have a lot of empathy for, for that. And, and so I've never been like this person, like you have to be in your chair from nine to five because you have life happens between nine and five. Right. right. And so, but for me personally, this past year, I lost um, one of the most important human beings in my life, which was my father. And I literally sat catatonic on my um, couch for two weeks, going through 180 videos of my dad. And, and literally I had never felt so paralyzed in all my life on how I move forward with a human being that had so much influence into who I am, um, who gave me the confidence to be a strong woman, who um, gave me the love to be a human that has empathy for others. And so it was traumatic. And I would tell you for about seven to eight weeks, I was not a normal human being, um, just as I was trying to process how my life would go without losing him. And recently I shared that with inside our company and with, of course, with my team immediately. And I, I tell you, what, I learned right then God gave me, for me, God gave me an experience that helped me even be more empathetic to understand what people go through. We say like, you lose somebody of three days of bereavement. Are you flipping kidding me? I mean, that's, it's, you know what I mean? So I was just like, Hey, look, I'm going to be gone for two weeks. No, by the way, I may not be normal for five weeks. And I would get on conference calls or zoom calls. And we would start talking and I would just break down out of the blue. And I just thought, I got to go. I'm, I'm hanging up right now. Y'all are good to make this decision, but I can't be here right now. I'm about to break down, break down over my dad. And so I just think so, it, especially those of us in the C-suite, we, we live in this maybe ivory tower that we've created ourselves, which is, is something that people can't seem like they can touch whenever they need to. And I think now the is more than ever is the time where society needs us to have empathy to understand the skills that we need to give people to deal with that backpack, but keep it logical and reasonable, um, but efficient and effective. And, uh, it, you know, I think life just gives you good experiences and you just try to figure out how to navigate. So I have many things I think about everything you just said. Um, mm -hmm. So on one hand, I am so sorry about the loss of your dad. You. I lost my dad um, mm -hmm. 
my dad died uh, a week before my oldest son was born. And it was, I am absolutely my father's daughter and all for good and ill, so much ill, Jennifer, because he was Mm. my favorite asshole. So I get me wrong. Yes, yes. Totally, totally. I I mean, take the good with the bad on that one. But it does every once in a while, something will catch me. And almost five years later, I still like, it's a really quick and direct my heart and absolutely and I think back on you know at the time I was not working because I was super pregnant um and I remember actually I remember that pregnancy but um but yeah but so like my my husband was working and they gave him like a few days off and I was like all the baby all the hormones wow dead dad yeah really yeah, that, you know, so yeah, totally understand on that. But to move it to the bigger picture of what you're talking about, I think you are so right that I love the current, for want of a better term, trend I see in media and the workplace around authenticity. And I mm-hmm. love that you're seeing, instead of seeing, you know, C- C-suite guys from finance and all those guys, you three-piece suits, headshots, looking very somber. You've got, you know, shirt sleeves, and they're talking about this time they screwed up and another time that they spent, you know, six yeah. weeks in rehab. And I'm like, yes, let's have a real conversation. And, you know, I spent so much of my early professional career trying to be professional. Mm. Um, and I can fake it, Jennifer, I can. <laughs> but I really don't like to. As it turns out. And, you know, I I am just mouthy and I do have opinions about everything, including the five things you didn't ask me about. So, (laughs) like, I can try to bite my tongue, but it's not very successful for anybody involved. Yeah. Um, And I love the fact that these days in business, like, it's just about being authentic all the time. And I joke, like, with my partners, I'm like, well... I'm always on brand. I'm going to say whatever I fucking thought well, about. Because you don't that. have to fake it anymore. You no. have to fake it, right? And and I actually been there like that for a very long time. I think I got to this place in my life where I, you know, I, financially, you know, I I I'm I'm a woman that is in this, you know, has a C title, but I don't have an undergrad. I don't have an undergrad. And so my experience has completely been on the job, you know, create my own leadership skills, uh, be a person that people can relate to and just get done, get shit done, right? Just get, sh- that's the kind of, that was my education. And so in lieu of being bred to get a, you know, a PhD or a master's or whatever, or even an undergrad. And so I think that like, it's, I've always kind of been just who I am because I, I didn't, I didn't need to fake it. And so, um, and have always been outspoken, like, you know, I think maybe that comes from having strong father relationships. And so I, I think you're going to see, hopefully see people may be more authentic. I think it's going to be harder for some generations to do that just because it's really hard to come out of that. But I think there's no other way for us to move forward. I think if you see the level of trauma and the, the stuff that's been done that hurts people, um, the only way we're going to move out of that, and, and this has been two years worth of seeing lots of loss, that the only way we're going to move through that 
and we're not going to move around it and we're going to move over it. We've just got to walk straight through it. And the only way to do that is to navigate the emotions and, and understanding what we need to provide for people um, to be healthier human beings. That's it. And acknowledging it. I'm just acknowledging is like most of the battle, um, but it just makes for happier people. And especially when it comes to your immediate family, you know, you've got people that are dealing with children that maybe have mental challenges or, or, you know, uh, physical disabilities that they need to work with and, and truly understanding how to help them through that and navigate, but just giving them the the space to do what they need to do. Um, when the most important thing at work is just, just getting your deliverables done, but does it have to be on your time or does it have to be within the right time? You know what I mean? Just flexible. And I think that's what we we've lost some of that, but hopefully we'll get it back here soon. You know, I think it's interesting. So the managers that I find that are having the hardest trouble um, maintaining staff, when you hear all this nonsense about great resignation, et cetera, et cetera, the people who have what I think of as old school mentality around. So I did a a poll on um, LinkedIn a while back about how many hours a week should somebody who is um, exempt be expected to work. And they were, the overwhelming majority said, you know, 35 to 40 hours a week. And yet there were some that said 50 plus. And consistently those people were of the boomer generation. And I'm like, guys, this is just, why do you care? Why do you care? And all of the comments I had, which I agree with, is that if you are paying me to come and be your director of talent acquisition, right? Like if I went back to working for other people and I went back to being director of talent acquisition, why do you give a shit if I do that Monday through Friday, eight to five, or if I do that Sunday to Sunday, yeah, whenever I, I felt like doing it, but I show up for the call. Like, yeah, to me, as long as you bring me the right yeah. talent that's of high quality. Right. And we're doing it in a way that care. doesn't get you sued. I don't care. <laughs> and that creates, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, that's right. All of the other things okay. that go along with being, doing that job, like, why do you care? And there is, I, I hate to make it an ageist thing because I know that there are boomers who don't feel this way. And I know that there are millennials who do like there's assholes of every age, but it does definitely seem to be a very, at this point, archaic in the workplace mentality that this whole, you know, the, you, your high achievers are the first in and last out. No, they're not. What? I no. people are bad. High achievers to me know how to know how to task faster, man. They know how to delegate. They know how to lead. They know how to make decisions. Um, you know, I, I completely agree with you, Michelle. You know, I think, I think the problem is not that, that some of those people are assholes, but maybe they just don't know the benefits of creating flexibility for, for people. And, and really that, that the end of the day, the, the deliverables getting delivered is, is the most important part, but, and that happens in the best way when you have someone that feels liberated and yeah. someone that feels like independently they have control over their own their own life and and how they get those things done and they don't are not um their creativity is not pushed down and so and somebody's creative cycle may be at 10 o'clock at night or it may be at nine o'clock in the morning or at lunch and so you know i i just think i i i don't know that everybody has stopped for a minute opened themselves up to see what that looks like 
But man, if COVID didn't slap a whole lot of people in the face with the ability to do that, um, man, something's wrong. I, I remember seeing somebody that somebody used instant messaging like Skype or Teams or their indi- you know their availability indicator to see when their people were online. Like they would just go, and I was like, man, you just created a world. You know, if you're if you're monitoring your people like that, you just created a world of fear. Of I better be you know right here right then, you know. Uh, or, you know, they're not going to say I'm doing my job. Man, does I, that create a culture that's just not fun. And I just feel like this is also, so again, because everything's about me, Jennifer. <laughs> <laughs> um, from a recruitment perspective, what I try and what I try so hard to educate managers on is you have to hire people that you feel like you can trust to just do their damn job. Hire smart people and leave them alone to do their job. Yeah. Hiring you said a keyword trust though. Yes. Trust is not trust is not um common, right? Exactly. But I'm like, if you quit hiring people, you don't feel like you can trust. And if you're gonna tell me, well, how do I know if I can trust them? Then we need to build into the recruitment process some kind of an indication. Is this a person that you can trust? And let's you know that the biggest that. way to help a victim of trafficking, just to f- tie the two different worlds together, but is, is what we call trust-based relationship intervention or um, a trauma-informed care. Like it's literally about building trust-based relationships. I think d- that's the same in everything else, right? Is, is creating a, an environment of trust where you trust until you can't trust them anymore, Right. Which is very rarely because if you set something, an expectation for someone and give them everything, all the resources they need to be able to achieve it, 90 percent of the time they're going to do it. It's only like 10 percent of the people that are like, yeah, screw it. I don't want to do it. You know what I mean? And then those just just quit letting work for you. Do you know what I mean? That's right. You You feed them out. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I, I, I think there, you know, there's a lot of people stuck in this, I went through this, therefore you have to go through it mentality. There's a lot of, this is the way that I've always managed and my people have always done okay, so why would I change? Well, the problem is you never know opportunity cost, right? You don't know, you know that your people always performed at this level. You don't know if you had done it this other way, would they have performed at this level? Right, I mean, it's kind of like children, right? It's kind of like children, having children. If you, if you use the analogy of having children, every child is different and you have to parent each one. I believe you have to parent each one the way they need to be parented. You know, I've got, I, my oldest son is very compliant and he's kind of go with the flow and he lives in, you know, the clouds. The oldest son, the youngest son will debate on anything. Um, he's witty. He gets to the answer really quick. And so, and, but, but sometimes a pain in the ass. And so I have to parent those two very differently. And I think that's with your teams and your peers is you just have to have relationships that are individualized with those people. Uh, you know, you know, may, maybe somebody needs this from you, but maybe that one needs far less, but this. And so I think that you just have to learn how to be an, a leader that is authentic, but creates individualism with the people that you work with and the people that work on your team um, to see what we all kind of need. Because at the end of the day, what we want is just, is, is these to enjoy life really to have, for me, it's all about fun. If I'm not having fun at it, why the hell am I doing it? And so, you know, and sometimes it gets a little tense, but that's expected too. But Jesus, Louise, if we're making life harder for ourselves, what the, 
this is it's for not you know yeah what's yeah, the point absolutely. what's the point well and the whole you know and i think again child of the 80s so i grew up right with all of the like you 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 work and you work and you work and you work and you make all the money and like that is that's the goal is all the money to catch all the money and then then like you become an adult and you're like well that model sucks because that model <laughs> yeah, right. says that like yeah i mean we could afford to do fun shit but we don't have any time to do fun shit and yeah. then that's before you throw kids into the whole mix right and like oh is that the mom i want to be is the mom yeah. that may you know okay great she makes great money but i never see my kids that seems like a terrible mom to want to be i would i would personally scream at my children and abuse them jennifer i don't want to farm <laughs> that out that's I want right, all of right. your trauma to come. You're gonna do that torture that's yourself. That's, that's right. right. That's right. I you know, for you know bastards. <laughs> it's it's interesting you say that. You know, I've never, I I've always wanted to achieve, um, you know, and, and probably I'm, uh, honestly, it has something to do with the fact that I never. My father was very focused on my education, and I didn't exactly follow his plan. Um, so I was always my goal was to prove to my father that I could be successful, you know, without what he thought was the right plan. And so that's probably what motivated me to be, so I've never been one to chase the money or the title. Um, in fact, to turn down the C title for several times when it wasn't the right culture or the right person to go work for. And so, but I will tell you that what I would tell the next generation who consistently perceives, you know, you need these things to be successful and money and blah, 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 that all of that tertiary follows. If you're having a good time and you're making other people smile and you're making sure other people are having a good time and you'll enjoy doing what you're doing and you're achieving what you need to for in the in a company, the shareholder value. If you're really achieving that, that other stuff, that other success stuff comes with it. That other, you know, you know, going to the next level will come that if you're doing the right thing is that money of, of feeling financially stable and successful, that'll come if you're if you're in fact doing the right things by others and and helping uh, provide a better opportunity for other people. I just think, you know, your leadership will be built around those things and, and supporting and lifting other people up is, is really what lifts you up both from a feelings perspective, from who you are, from a feeling of being a successful human and a good human. I think that's really what we have to focus on because the law of attraction, man, that just comes. It, it brings all the other successful criteria to the table for you after you're, you know, after you address that core stuff. So I have to ask on that note, because we ask everybody, how do you answer when somebody asks you how much you make? You know, it's funny, I, I was on a, I was actually speaking to a group of kids or young people um, that were that come in, that were in college. Um, they were from a run underrepresented uh, demographic. There's an organization called Empower um, that basically uh, helps kids that are not, you know, don't actually go to college, but maybe go after certifications and so forth and, and being successful. And so we, they wanted me to share my story. I met her at a, at a, at, I was speaking in an event in Kansas, Kansas. And, and so she's like, Hey, come speak to these students. So I did. And, and we're around the conversation, we're around the table talking via zoom. And, and they said that they were like, you know, how, you know, what it, I answered the question. I told them exactly what my salary was. I told them exactly my total compensation uh, from a bonus standpoint. So I just answered the question. Um, I needed them to see that if, in fact, they chose a different path, although I always encourage going to university, 
um, because I just think it gives you a, a level of perspective that you don't normally get. Um, uh, it, it just provides a different level of, of experience. But I, I literally, I think they needed to see that there was possibility, that there was opportunity, that someone who you, I look like uh, the typical stereotype of somebody um, that is successful. And, and went through all the right things and did all the right things, go to university, blah, 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 had a lot of friends or whatever to actually achieve uh, what is considered the top role in my industry in technology. I needed them to see that my, my path didn't go like this, that my path was like this. And, and it wasn't always the path that somebody had destined for me, but that still no matter what that I got here, but I needed them to see that not just from a financial standpoint, but I made them see that, that I feel like I'm personally successful, like, meaning I'm happy with who I am, happy with where I'm content with my life. And I'm also con happy with what my role is. I'm also happy with my family. And, but, but then at the end of the day, the financial success came too. And so I, I do, I, they asked, I told, and, and I'm not a, ashamed of it. Or, you know, I think, you know, I even expressed that every time I've made a move, it's been very conscious, um, made sure I was going to the right culture that I wanted, or I thought that I was going to work for the right person that I wanted to work for, and then always negotiated a good, you know, a, a good increase every time I decided to share my skills with some other company. And so, um, so that, you know, it depends on, you know, it depends on how the answer comes or question comes. Like, I was like, well, how much money do you make? I'd be like, none of your business. But if it was, if it was a group of kids that said, well, how, you know, how successful are you like financially? Like, do you like make a lot of money? I'm like, you know what? I need you to see that. Yes, that's possible. And so I did. Depends on the situation. Well, I love that answer. I also love that. I note that you did not answer the question about how much you paid in that answer, which is fine. And I, but I thought that was delightful, Jennifer. So thank you. Thank you so much. No and problem. thank you. This has been a fantastic conversation. It was not the conversation, actually, I thought we were going to have, but I loved it every second of it. You're amazing. Um, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having such a, like, a frank and outward, you know, just a conversation that just sounded real. And and uh, hopefully your listeners will like it. I'm sure you sound exciting. So when I need more talent, I'll definitely come to you if I don't have a candidate. Works for me. <laughs> Thanks, Jennifer. Thanks so much, Rochelle. You've been listening to, Hey, I want your job. For more information on how you can get your own awesome job, visit ONH Consulting at www.onhconsulting.com. We offer incredible resumes, no-nonsense career advice, and real-world tips for landing a job in today's market. Check us out on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Insta for more insider information. Soon, you'll be hearing us say, I'm Michelle Olivier, and hey, I want your job.